Please turn with you in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. God add his blessing to this reading of his word. This time of year, the great Christmas season, the main emphasis is on the birth of Christ. And that's a very good thing. It gives ordinary people who would otherwise have very little connection with the church opportunities to hear about Christ they may not otherwise have. And for us Christians, it can be A good reminder of this inestimable gift of God sending his only begotten son into this world. But of course there's also the potential for problems we mentioned, one of them not so long ago, which is for all this to be turned into idolatry, to the use of images and worshipping God in ways that he said he is not to be worshipped. Another problem It's simply that we begin to fixate on Christ only as an infant, just as that baby in the manger, in isolation from everything else. And so even if there's no physical image involved at all, that's not the best way 
to think about Christ Jesus. It's something that the Gospels themselves, if you're reading through the Gospel, doesn't allow you to do that. It doesn't stay there. It moves quickly on. It needs to tell you about Christ coming into this world. It needs to tell you that he was born of a virgin. Those things are important. But it moves quickly on to all the things that Christ said and did. And then furthermore, the New Testament, then explaining all this amazing theology so that everything is understood in its context. And you have the real, complete, full Christ and not some sort of pale facsimile of Christ. That's something the early church didn't do. Their message was not Christ is born. Their message was Christ died and moreover Christ is risen. Now that assumes that Christ was born. He couldn't possibly have died if he didn't come into this world. But the fuller message is certainly beyond his birth. And another problem is that simply because all that we see is the manger scene and not the history behind it, not all the promises behind it, and all the prophecy leading up to it, and all the tremendous theological context as part of it, we just take it for granted. We say, oh yes, Christ is born. It's just so blasé, so ordinary. It loses all of its power, all of its true wonder. Well, this morning, as we come to Revelation chapter 5, we have the opportunity to address these things. Our passage does speak of the absolute requirement for this sinless, divine Savior to come into this world. Then it calls us to do something that perhaps we've not thought of. Perhaps we've not been given much opportunity to do during this time, this Christmas season. It calls us to consider the thought What if he didn't come? What if there was no one qualified to be the savior of mankind? Because that thought, that awful thought of the possibility of there being no one like that, no one able to save, no one able to help us, no one able to carry out the purpose of God in this world is contemplated here. And it is an awful thought. It causes John the apostle to weep. Now we know that there's good weeping and bad weeping. Perhaps even some of us have experienced that children weep for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they weep even just because they didn't get the present that they wanted. It's not a very good reason to do that. But there are good reasons to weep. And the awful thought that we as sinners are the mercy of ourselves and that there is no one in heaven and no one on earth and no one under the earth who is able and worthy to open the scroll of God's redemption is an awful thought. And he was right to weep at such a thought. If there was ever a cause to weep, it was surely that. So we think of that. But again, we don't stop there. As the title of the sermon is, Do Not Weep, the Lamb has prevailed. Because John is not allowed to continue weeping. In God's providence, in God's design, the situation was given to them, the information, the hypothetical question was presented to him to make him weep at the thought. But he's quickly brought to an end of that weeping. Do not weep because the Lamb has prevailed. And he is able and he is worthy to open 
that scroll and to save his people from their sins. You see, because it doesn't just stop at the fact that Christ was born. It goes on to speak of what he came in this world to do, why he was born. It speaks of the fact that he was going to be the lamb who would be slain, the one who would provide a sacrifice for sin. Now, of course, it's very hard to put all that into a single manger scene, isn't it? Almost impossible. Impossible, actually. The Lord provides us in in his word with his fuller, most amazing picture. And that is what we now turn. Do not weep. The lamb has prevailed. So these three points then. First, the scroll. Second, I wept. Third, the lamb has prevailed. The scroll, I wept. The lamb has prevailed. We begin with the first point, the scroll. We read in verse 1, now I, And I saw in his right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So you see there's a scroll, and it is in the right hand of God. Now, right away, we have to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, we can't go any, any further without explaining that. Again, that's one of the problems of these just simple sort of manger scenes. We can't understand what's going on without reference to... We can't understand who Jesus Christ is without reference to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we've mentioned that if, if, God, if God has a physical form, then it must be Christ. It must be the second person of the Trinity. Because Christ is the image of the invisible God. And any right, any correct representation of the Father is either Christ or is certainly indistinguishable from him. How could you possibly say it wasn't? Because he is the image of the invisible God. However, that then doesn't stop there from being both the Father and the Son in some way then being represented. Because, of course, they are both true persons of the one true God. That's what we come to in the Daniel 7 passage of which this part of Revelation has so much in common. In Daniel 7, 9, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And you see that that's very much like the picture of Christ that we have in Revelation chapter 1. It's very similar to that. But then it goes on. In Daniel 7.13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. And there you have these two persons together, the Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man. And likewise, that is what we have in Revelation. We have this picture of Christ as the image of the Eternal Father. But then we also have the Lamb in this chapter, distinct from the Father. So we have both the Father and the Son, and also, of course, the Holy Spirit is represented because he has the seven spirits of God, again, pointing to the Holy Spirit. So, we have Christ, this depiction of the representation of the Father in these first few these chapters. We have a depiction of the Son as distinct from the Father, present at the same time. You see, these aren't different modes of God, like as in God at one point in history appears only as a father, and then more recently God appears as a son, and then God appears as the Holy Spirit. That's called modalism, where God just has these different modes. It's not that. It's that actually these are all the one true God 
existing eternally and together. These are the three persons of God. It's a trinity. And it's the way, it's the only context by which we can understand who Christ is. That he is the son of this triune God. So, there's a scroll at the right hand of God the Father. And now let's think about what that scroll might be. Now, there's not a special word in in Scripture that distinguishes between scroll and book. It's just the word biblios, where we would get the word book. And we translate it here as scroll in particular. Other places in Revelation, that word is translated just as book, 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 book. But here it's translated as scroll because it couldn't just be a book. Why? Well, because it says that it's written on both sides. Now, that's not remarkable for a book because, of course, on the pages of a book... You see that they're written on both sides. But it is remarkable for a scroll because if you've seen a scroll, you, you see how it is that it's normally rolled up on the outside. There's nothing. You unroll it and inside is the writing. Well, this, the only exceptions to that are when you have so much to say, when there's so much information to convey in a single scroll that it has to be written on both sides. And that's the situation here. It's a scroll that is written on both sides. It is absolutely chock full of information inside and outside. Now, this word for scroll or book, it incurs, it's a hugely important term in Revelation. We have it over two dozen times. If you have... In order to understand Revelation, we're talking about these larger things, but one of the things we must understand is the importance of book or the books. We've seen it twice already in in chapter 1. What do you see? Write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then we saw it in Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, we're already getting the picture, aren't we, that there's probably more than one book. And that's the reality. We can't just wrap it up onto to which, which book is it as if there's only one book. There's several books in Revelation. It's made clear even in the course of a single verse in Revelation 20.12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And so when we put these things together, we realize that there are at least three books that Revelation has uh, is making reference to, and they're all extremely important. It does not matter if you're a Christian or not. You should, you should consider the reality of what is written in these three books. First of all, praise God, there's the Lamb's Book of Life, which contains the names of all the elect. We have that reference over and over again in Revelation 21:27. Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, nothing's going to come into it. Nothing that, it, that defiles or causes an abomination or lie. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the only ones going into heaven. You ought to consider whether your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because if not, you're not going to heaven. You're going to hell. There's a Lamb's Book of Life. And you know what? There's nothing else written in that book, as best we can tell. There's no works. There's no deeds recorded in that book. Because that's not the basis upon which you come to heaven or you don't. It's not on the basis of your works. It's simply the Lamb's Book. And it all has as your name. And that's the basis upon which you're entered. If he died for your sins, if he's written you in that 
that book, you've put your faith in Christ, then that's all that needs to be known. There's no further thing in there. The greatest and most famous Christian that has ever lived and a thief on the cross, there's no difference with that regard. It's just a name. Name in the Lamb's book of life. Now on the other hand, on the other hand, there's another book. We call it just the book of life. And there it's the record of all the works of men by which they will be judged. It has nothing to do with the Lamb. It has everything to do with what they've done. And what it says in Revelation 20.12, Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Those are the books that will be opened. And it records everything that you have ever done, everything that you have ever said. And it is by that work that if you are not in Christ, all those works that you'll be judged. Now, for those of you who have gone through Christianity and explored, you know that that is the scariest point, isn't it? It's the, uh, again, we live in such an image-filled culture. Rather than speaking of a book, Rico Tice talks about pictures, pictures of things that you've done throughout all of your life. Imagine if every last thing you've ever done is recorded as a picture and it's in a gallery, like the size of this room. Now, some of those things you might be happy to be seen publicly, but a lot of those others you wouldn't be. A lot of those others you wouldn't. And what Rico says is what I, and I think most of us would say, he said, if those things were in, in, on for public display, I couldn't look anyone in the eye ever again. Because... We are sinners, and that is the sort of thing, not just in pictures, but in absolute verity of words, words which the great judge, the one with the eyes of the flaming fire, has recorded perfectly in his book. That is the book that will be opened on Judgment Day, and you will be judged by it, if you're not in the Lamb's book of life. So that's two books, and the Lamb's book of life, the book of life that just records our events, the things that we've done, our works. And this scroll, this book, is neither of those things. We soon hear some of its contents as the seals are opened. And it's neither the works of individual men, nor is it just the names of Christians, the names who, who um, Christ has died for. It's neither of those things. Rather, it's the plan. It's the narration of what's going to happen. It tells us what's going to happen. The history, you see, of God's works. The history of the work of redemption. And so Ramsey, you might find a very helpful commentator on Revelation, says this. This can represent nothing else than the gracious purposes of God in reference to his church or kingdom of grace. It is the divine place of the administration of this kingdom. That's, you see, what it is. It's a script of history. Is it really all written out? Yes, it is all written out. Because as we considered last time, God is really sovereign. He is really in control. He is not awaiting things. We write things about the future in very tentative terms. We have, it, we have things penciled in. Why? Because we don't know the future. We don't know much detail to the future because we only have some basic plans which may change. But God is not like that. God is sovereign. God determines every last thing that will happen and therefore it is as if and it may well be physically for all we know but it's certainly as if every last thing had been written out. 
And all that remains then is for these things actually to be read out. You see, God is sovereign. God knows the future because God knows his own mind. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's planned to do and what he is going to do. And so you have, as it were, this transcript of the divine mind. And it's being read out line by line. And those things, as they are read out, see, that's the thing. That's another thing that's different. You can, we can read lots of things, and they don't happen. Now, every once in a while, we have just a little bit of a picture of the idea of reading is the same as happening. Uh, well, say, for instance, if a minister is, is marrying a couple, and, and there's a pronouncement of marriage, and it really works in the sense of they weren't married before that pronouncement, and then they are. Well, that's just this little bit of the way God is. And as we find out when Christ does open that scroll and he reads these things, they happen. And that's, you see, what happens in this scroll, this transcript of the divine mind, this script of all of history. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away with it. It's chock full of both sides. Nothing can be added. Everything that will ever take place on into eternity future is already known because God knows his own mind. And it is just awaiting it to be read out, you see. So that's the scroll. That brings us to our second point regarding the scroll, which is, I wept much. It says in verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one was able to open that scroll. Now that's further explained by verse 2, which says, looking for who is, the the question is, who is worthy to open the scroll, to loose its seal? And those two things work together. The one who is worthy to open that scroll is the one who is able to open it. Worthy and able. And we need to understand the job description because it, it brings us to our point of the fact that John wept. We need to understand what is the job description of one who is able, one who is worthy to open and read this scroll. As we've just mentioned and as we're going to see, to open it is to enact the things that are written in it. You open it, that you, you apply, that then you, you look at it and you read it out. And the one who has the authority to do these things also brings them to be and carries them out, as it were, himself. So if this scroll is the great plan of salvation, the great plan of God's working, what it means when it says opening and looking at it is someone who is going to carry out God's plan. Now, we know that God's plan consists not only of creating all things, that's the beginning of it, but then in the work of providence and all the things, not just the things that have to do with with the church, not just the things that have to do with redemption, but of all the things that ever happen, that we know that every last detail of that is part of his work of providence. Now that's, I need not tell you, that that's a fantastically complex job. Who is able to do that? Who is able to uphold all the things in the universe simultaneously at every moment of history, morning and night, without any rest? All the time. But that's just the beginning of it, because we know that to enact the plan, the most important part is not just the larger work of of providence in God's sustaining and moving all of history, 
but of particularly the work of redemption. And there's one part of that job description that's more difficult, more challenging than any other part of that job description, and that is to save sinners from their sin. Who's going to be able to do that? It's a demanding job description if we think about it. It's seen in the fact that no one was found who was able to do that. No one was qualified. Now we know that sometimes organizations have a difficult time finding someone, a qualified person to fill a particularly demanding job description. But it's an entirely different thing to say that no one was found, not just on earth or under the earth, but even in heaven. That's an entirely different level because what it's pointing to is the impossibility of any creature doing these things. Just go through them in reverse order. Under the earth. Now that one's relatively easy to understand because that's the place of the damned. That's the place of devils. That's the, they're not going to be able to do it. Although strangely, some people seem to forget that. Strangely, sometimes people want to find redemption through the dead. Sometimes people turn to the lies of Satan. All too often they do. But of course, we in our right minds would say, no, no one under the earth is possibly able to do this job description. Well, what about the earth? Well, that requires a little bit more consideration. There's lots of people on this earth. There's billions and billions and billions. Surely someone is going to be qualified. But the problem is that one thing we can say about each and every one, that six or seven billion people on this earth, is that we're all sinners. Because of the fall of man, because of all of our actual sin, we are born in sin and we carry on in sin throughout our life and we could not even save ourselves, let alone others. Even one sin brings us under the wrath of God. There's no way we could save one, someone else because, as I said, we can't even save ourselves. Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, We are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That's the thing we don't much consider. We think, let's put up all those, those pictures, and yes, well, okay, I'd have a wall that I wouldn't want to show you. Maybe we could put a curtain over that wall. But there's another wall that I'd be glad to show off because it's got all of my good works. And you would be impressed if you thought of all of my charity, if you thought of all of my religious deeds, of the times that I helped people, and all the rest of those things, and my great love for my family. You would be impressed by those things. The problem is... What it says in Isaiah is not that all of my sins are like filthy rags. It says all of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That even you on your best day and the best thing that you've ever done is tainted by sin. It is like in the sight of God a filthy rag. That's your righteousness. That's your good wall, let alone your bad wall. So no, there's no one on earth who could possibly fulfill that job description. What about heaven, though? We said that this most obvious disability, the, most, the thing that disqualifies all seven billion of us, is our sin. But is that, that, that's not the case for the angels in heaven, right? They are sinless. They've never fallen. There's no sin there at all. Surely we must find one among them. But no, even they are not qualified. Why? Well, you see, the thing is, we have to, the, the thing that is required of a Savior is that He save human beings. He save men and women who are fallen and are sinful 
in their fallen sinful humanity. And what you need then is an unfallen humanity to do that. You need flesh. And that's the thing that angels don't have. They're spirits, you see. They don't have human flesh. So that, that disqualifies them right there. And along and connected with that, along with that, is the fact that they thus cannot die. The sacrifice, you see, needs to die. You, an angel cannot die. Now, uh, we, we somehow, how is that a disqualification? Because, well, to be immortal, to be one who cannot die, that seems like a good thing. And it is a good thing for the thing of which they're called to be, which is to minister to us, to, to save us and rescue us out of trouble. And it's a wonderful thing that they don't die. It's a wonderful thing that they can carry on in all sorts of danger and they can carry on in all sorts of works of which we are not the slightest bit aware of. Maybe one day all these things will be explained to us, but we're probably being saved from idolatry at the moment by not knowing anything about these things. But they're able to do these things in their great strength and the fact that they can't die and all that. But it's not a good thing. It totally disqualifies them from being a savior because they can't be an atoning sacrifice. They can't die for the sins of others. So they're disqualified on that count. And you know, even if they could die, you would think then that they could only die for one. Because they're not divine. It's just one angel, you see. They don't, they're not able then to pay for it. They themselves perhaps would, would perish in the attempt, but maybe they would save one other. Well, actually then, if you think about it, think about it a little bit closer and it doesn't even get you that far. Why is it that when God sentences people, sinners, to hell, that they remain there forever? The reason is that the weight of sin is infinite. Because we have sinned against an infinite God. And therefore, our penalty goes on forever. There is this infinite part, this component of our sin on a finite being. And that never, 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 in all infinity, all eternity, it's never actually paid off. So how then could even a sinless angel pay even for the sins of one sinner? Couldn't. Couldn't. So now you see then, no one under the earth, no one on the earth, and even no one in heaven, no one is found able to do this great work to open those seals, to carry out the plan of redemption. No one is able. There is no kinsman redeemer. We looked around and there was none to save. And that's what brings us into the main aspect, main point of this point, which is, I wept much. Because it says in verse 4, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. I wept much. And if we think about it, we ought to. We ought to consider the utter failure, the utter futility, and the terribleness of such a situation. See, John was not wrong or foolish for doing this. In a moment, you might think so because you, we've said as we've gone through the Gospel of John that as far as we can tell, there is no one on earth who is closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle John. In a sense, he was... Jesus Christ's best friend. And yet, he weeps. Has he lost his mind? Has he completely forgotten? No. The situation is given to him. 
just for a moment to contemplate the awful reality if there were no one able to do this thing. And he was right to weep. You know, perhaps nowhere else is our fallenness and our sinful more sinfulness more in evidence than in our strongest emotions. I'm speaking about weeping and rejoicing. And the question is, what do we weep over and what do we rejoice over? And I tell you that sometimes an ugly sight the things that people weep over and the things that they rejoice over. Here in Revelation, we find, for instance, people weeping in chapter 18, not because no one is found worthy to open the scroll, but because Babylon is being judged. Their source of material wealth, their source of pleasure is being taken away from them and they weep. And oh, do they weep. And they lift up their voice in great crying and weeping. And they, they bewail and they, they mourn. On the other hand, funny enough, on the very same circumstance, the destruction of Babylon, the saints are told in Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. You see how this very same circumstance can provoke opposite reactions between those who are in rebellion against God and those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. For the one, it is their great source of weeping, and it is for the other, the great source of rejoicing. Of course, you can imagine, again, if it were the case that no one is truly found worthy, and that Satan would greatly rejoice at that, wouldn't he? He wouldn't be weeping like the Apostle John, he would be rejoicing. And of course, you know that throughout the Lord's earthly ministry, he sought ways of making that happen. He sought ways of disqualifying the Lord Jesus by making him fall, making him sin, making him turn away from the pathway of reading out and enacting that plan of salvation. But he wasn't able. No, what should we weep over? We shouldn't weep over the loss of these things that Babylon can give us. But we should weep for the thing that is mentioned in Lamentation 1.16. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Now he's just speaking in a moment of time. Considering, considering just one part of the situation in isolation from the rest. But if that were true. If our comforter, our redeemer was far from us and there was no one qualified to save us, then ladies and gentlemen, we should weep. But John isn't left there and we're not left there because on our third point, the lion has prevailed. We read in verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There is someone who is able to do this great work. And he's called both a lion and also a root. Strange combination there. He's called the lion of Judah. That's the way things are described in Genesis 49. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who can rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, 
and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now those are fairly dark sayings. It's a bit obscure, but here's what it means. It's pointing to the royal line coming through the tribe of Judah. Again, it's pointing to sovereignty and to kingship. That Christ was a tribe, was from the tribe of Judah. And he's going to have the scepter, and he's going to reign. He's the lion of Judah. And more specifically, of all of Judah, it's not just the whole tribe, it's specifically, he is the root of David. He's going to come from the royal line of David. As we have in Isaiah 10, or Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the day of Christ, there shall be a root of Jesse. It shall stand as a banner to the people. The Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. He is the offspring, but also the root of David. Indeed, that's the way it's put in the very last chapter of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. I am the root and the offspring of David. You see, he's both the, the, the outcome of all the promises given that David was going to reign forever and ever, the sons of David were going to reign forever, but he's also the root source of that kingship. He is the one who gave that to David in the first place. He's the root and the offspring. And of course, both of these things then are, are juxtaposed, are in strange co-location with the fact that he's also a lamb. So he's a lion, he's the root, and he's also the lamb. Well, this one, this son of God, he has prevailed. He's overcome. You see, again, in our source, the right kind of weeping comes when there's failure. And John was musing over the incredible abject failure of mankind to produce a savior of angel kind to produce a savior no one was able to produce a savior but now what is rejoicing what is the cause of rejoicing well if you're a football fan the rejoicing is when your team wins when it's victorious and if you're a christian the rejoicing is that christ wins christ has overcome he has prevailed it's that same word again. We've been talking, there's two words of great significance that we've mentioned for this whole book. One is book itself, and the other one is overcoming, being victorious, winning. That's what is being said here. This lamb, this lion, this root, he has overcome because he's the king. That's what kings do they win, they conquer. That's what he's called his people to do. He said that we should overcome. Remember, he says, if you overcome, then I'll give you, you know, I'll give you your place in, the, in heaven. I'll give you this name written, which no one knows. I'll make sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. But he's only calling us to do that by inviting us to partake in what he's already done. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has won. He has overcome. And we overcome with him. We're on his team, you see. Christ overcomes, and so do we. But that's just the sort of, the bare sort of description, just the outward package of the inner reality there. He's overcome, but the question is how? How did he overcome? Through what means did he, was he victorious? 
And the answer seems to come in verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And you see, there is the answer to it all. How is he worthy? How is he qualified to be the savior of mankind? It's because he is the lamb who was slain. He's the lamb who laid down his life. That's how he overcame. It's sort of like what it is in Revelation 12:11, And they, that is us, we overcame him by the blood of the lamb. It's an amazing thought, of course. We, we normally think of weapons, of, of a sword or, or a gun. And we overcome someone that way. But the way that this victory was achieved was through the shed blood of Christ. Must have been some blood, huh? What well, was? That's why he was qualified to have that blood. Our blood, sadly, isn't worth all that much because it's the blood of sinners. It's not going to save anyone. Angels don't have any blood to, shed in, uh, to, to, to give at all. But the blood of the God-man, who is both fully God and fully unfallen, sinless human being, his blood is of infinite worth. And this blood is more than enough to win the victory, to overcome all obstacles, including the fact that God's people are sinners. See, see if part of that scroll says, if reading it, Save some person. Save Bob Smith. Save this person. And he reads that. You know that what that requires him to do is to go out and to do that as well, to accomplish that. The one who's going to break that seal and read that and enact it is going to require him to actually do it. If you or I were to read that, we'd say we'd throw up our hands. But for him, in possession of, of all divinity, of being almighty God, and also being fully man, and being willing out of his great love by which he loved us, incredibly great love, willing to lay down his life he had then. The ability through his precious blood poured out for us to actually save that man and all the untold numbers of those who are like him written in the Lamb's book of life. And so he overcame Well, praise God he did. There was someone who was qualified for this great task. And now we consider how to apply these things to ourselves, and we have but two of them. And these are the things that John himself experienced. And the first one is to look and weep. All we're saying is to consider these things for a moment. Because again, who is weeping in this passage? It's John. Again, as it were, the best friend of Jesus Christ. Yet, for some reason, the Lord wanted him to experience just for a moment this sadness, this thought that perhaps, what if there was no Redeemer? Perhaps then it is worth our consideration as well. Perhaps then we cannot really enter into that joy, that rejoicing, that worship, if we do not give a moment's thought to the awful reality there was no one else qualified. And that if Christ did not decide in obedience to the Father to come and lay down his life for us, and we are all doomed, we should look and we should weep at our situation. 
of what an awful reality that that would be. And I would say, not only for Christians, but I would say far more for those who have not come to faith in Christ, that you ought to look and weep. You see, if you think that there's some other Redeemer other than Jesus Christ, perhaps yourself, but perhaps some other false religion, who knows? Or maybe you, you haven't come to any sort of settled position at all. Perhaps you're just blithely going, going through life assuming that you'll come one day to someone or something that will save you in time, before you die, before Christ returns. You're mistaken. And perhaps it would do you good to consider the reality of how mistaken you are. To consider that there's no one on earth, under the earth or in heaven, who is able to save other than Jesus Christ. Again, do that quick search. What about you? Can you save yourself? Hardly. Not at all. Again, I'll give you. Go ahead. Put a curtain over the bad wall of all the things that you're terribly ashamed of and you wouldn't dare let anyone else know about. Let's talk about even the good wall where your righteous deeds, the things you're most proud of, are in the eyes of God like filthy rags. You cannot possibly save yourself. What about the world? Can the world do it? Can the world help you? No. No, I see the world is full of sinners just like you. What about the devil? Again, sadly, a lot of people think that he is able... I don't mean just Satan worshippers. There aren't many of those. You see, he's an angel of light. He comes in many guises. He comes deceiving people, saying that he's a great religious leader. He comes in all sorts of distorted, false religions that people put their trust in. Salvation, for instance, by moralism, by decency, by the sort of thing that lots of decent people think that they're saved by. But again, I give you bad news He's not going to be able to help you either. As we come through this book of Revelation, we find out his fate. And it is a sure and terrible one as he is cast into the lake of fire. He's not going to be able to help you either. You see, the whole picture is of one of us needing to come to the end of any other possibility. So often we've talked of the need to give the bad news before we give the good news. We, we rightly preach that Christ saves. If you put your faith in Christ, you'll be saved. But sometimes people aren't prepared for it because they've never come to any conviction of sin at all. And they don't think that they need a Savior because they think they can save themselves. They think they've made a deal with death that they'll somehow be okay. And they won't. And you need to understand that you won't be. That's what the Lord says. He's speaking to people like that in Isaiah 28. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will come to us. We've made lies our refuge. We've made moralism. We've made some false God. We've made some false religion our, our, our refuge. And under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. This is what it says. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overflow the hiding place and your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with hell will not stand. 
when the overflowing scourge passes through, you'll be trampled down by it. Because lots of people think that they have some way of salvation outside of Christ. But the Lord wants to disabuse you of that. There is no other possibility. So you ought to look and weep and understand that there is no other possibility other than Christ. But only for a moment. Only for a moment until we come to the joyous news that Jesus Christ has overcome. There is someone to be found. No, he's not a creature. Certainly not someone in, under the earth. He's certainly no man, mere man, nor an angel. But he is the God-man. And he has prevailed. Because of his unique qualifications of which no one else possibly could ever be conceived of being able to do this thing, he has prevailed. Against all opposition, he has prevailed to carry out this plan. And when he comes to the place where in the, the history, in the work of salvation that has been written from all eternity, when it comes to say, and now it's time to save this one, to your name, he's able to read it. He's able, as it were, to write those things in blood, his own shed blood. He's able to carry out these things because he has prevailed. And in his prevailing, we should rejoice. Again, we, we weep for a moment, but Luke 6.21 says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. We consider our sin. We consider the terrible, wretched depravity of mankind. We consider how hopeless we are outside of Christ. But then we rejoice because we think of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's been born. He didn't stay a baby. He was born into this world, perfect God-man. And then he died on the cross to save his people. And all those who put their faith in this God-man and Jesus Christ will be saved. And we can say then with Job, where I, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And he did stand on the earth and he shall come again. We know that our Redeemer lives and he has overcome to read out that great and enact that great work of salvation on this earth. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, as you brought the Apostle John to that awful moment of considering that there was no one on earth or under the earth or in heaven able to do these things, so, Lord, we have considered for a moment how awful the thought that is. No one of us is qualified in the slightest even to save ourselves, much less anyone else. But, Lord, we see the beauty and perfection of Jesus Christ and of his perfect victory on the cross, the lamb who was slain on our behalf. And how, Lord, we pray that we would put, all of us put our faith in him and be saved, knowing, Lord, that he alone is able to save us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.